a significant sum of outside capital with a ton of pressure, especially in the short to midterm, to go and drive growth and, and perform. And I kind of watched this business lose its soul in that process. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Kevin, welcome to Monday Millionaires. Good to see you, man. How are you? How's everything? Great. Always good to, to hang out on a Friday and chat with you and, and a kick-ass entrepreneur. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I Great was- hour in over my head there with uh, Mr. Chase Murdoch, man, especially on a Friday. And I, you said it's Friday. I'm going to take your word for that, but it's a little sleepy there. It was an amazing episode. You met Chase Ch- on a mountain. Is that right? Is that the, was that the first time you met him? No, was- no. I, the first time I met Chase, I actually flew out to Salt Lake for a happy hour. He was hosting that a number of clients and potential clients were going to be at. So I decided to hop a plane. It was, you know, uh, a, a lot of folks were in town for it. It was a really fun event. So we actually, he hosted it at Taylor Cooperative, one of his businesses in Dakota group that we, that we talk a lot about in the episode. So I met Chase the first time there and, and I think saw him at a conference or two in between, but then, yeah, I think we've mentioned on previous episodes, I did this Kilimanjaro trek with a handful of entrepreneurs and Chase was, was part of that crew. So really got to know Chase and his his story on the side of a mountain, a half a world away. And it just, you know, I, I knew we had to have him on the podcast because just what a, what a fascinating story from super young entrepreneur to like candidly. And he opens up about it. We talk about it to business failure and, and then back into the entrepreneur. I love the so. way you said jump a flight. You're like, yeah, I decided to jump a flight, you know, no big, no big it's, deal. It's just. It's Salt There's Lake. There's a flight I, there. I just decided to jump on it. And go I see make, what's going I make on no here. secret of outside of San Diego, Salt Lake is one of my favorite places in America. So Utah is fantastic. I rarely need an excuse to go there. Somebody made a, a crack about Provo, Utah recently. Incredibly beautiful place. I don't know. You'd have to be out of your mind and not think that that place is, is gorgeous. But so you got to know Chase well and really impressed. I think the like the... Chase has this way about him that is interesting. Like he's totally a guy I would buy a suit from, by the way, the way he talks about totally. it such, he's got really like eloquent speech patterns, very like, well, you could tell guy. he loves his business, right? Yes. That this isn't a money-making scheme. He actually loves the idea of custom tailored suiting and custom, like totally that passion comes out in the way he talks about his business. Well, and he gets into it later. I think he just is having fun with business generally, right? With such yeah. a business role model of sorts, because he talks about the fact that like, Hey, I could probably make more money doing a pure play roll up instead of doing a diversified holding company in Dakota. But like, you know, we're kind of building it's a lifestyle here and we want something yeah. for us. And I enjoy kind of the diversity and that's where the fun comes in. And I don't know that there's a ton. I think that's pretty sophisticated business mind to 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 
you know, put quality of life and, and other things ahead of just pure play money-making. It's a, it's a level of maturity in, in the business world that I think, you know, and, and we probably should have spent more time on that point specifically, but I have to assume grew out of his younger years when it was very much the grind, raise capital, you know, revenue growth off the charts, working a hundred hours a week and seeing where that ended effectively being pushed out of the company that he, he built from scratch, you know, mm. probably causes a, a little bit of that step back and reevaluate what's really important. Cause I'm not going to get those hundred hour work weeks back. And is there a smarter way to build wealth in small business? And I, I, I you know, I think he, he's just such a thoughtful entrepreneur from that angle in terms of really get to know what's driving you. And that may not be profit in every instance. And that's okay. And I love that yeah. about Dakota Group. Being, you know, something you talk, being fired from a business that you built, uh, a big business that you built yeah. in your, you know, t late teens into your early 20s and being fired at 23 by your, your investors is, uh, you know, an experience that not many people have in a lifetime. And Totally. What a what a way to start a business career, and I guess reflecting on that one point alone, it's no surprise that he is having the success that he had, yep. having had that level of of growth type of situation where like you don't need to go on and get an MBA after something like that, and you know, nothing against an MBA, but because at that point, I mean, you've had a business experience and business yeah. learnings that very few people have had. Meanwhile, in other news, before we slip over to Chase, uh, S&B Law Group is now hiring for a, a board of directors, a board advisory board. <laughs> it's a little. <laughs> so even though this pod is not affiliated with S&B Law Firm, to be clear. We're uh, only recruiting big law lawyers, though. We want we want a Kirkland partner. We want a Cravath partner on our board of advisors to really. Absolutely. Really help us take our return to work to the next level. This is a, a joke. We're joking. For the, for the bar examiners that are listening, we are joking. But certainly, Kevin, if we could find somebody who could just tell us how we could continually ratchet up our hourly rate each year, not at all in relation to uh, substance or reality, that would be fantastic. So if you're out there, DMs get are at open. us. DMs are open. All right. On that well, note. Yeah. With that, let's kick it over. Uh, fascinating conversation. I think people that if you don't already know Chase Murdoch, you're going to end this hour just loving his story and and such a likable guy. Yeah, so such a enjoy, and we will catch you next week. All right, guys, welcome back. Super excited to have with us today, Chase Murdoch of and I. We've been saying it before we hit record. Is it Dakota Group? Is that how we pronounce it, Chase? Yeah, you got it, Kevin. Yeah, Dakota Group. Dakota Group. Okay, a great. Holding so, company. Yeah, so Dakota Group is a holding company. We'll we'll jump into this here in a second, but you know, Dakota owns, I guess, four, um, four businesses. It's not a roll up model. They're all kind of different businesses. So we'll go into sort of the thinking and and strategy and things like that. But before we get to Dakota, let's just jump right in and start back from the beginning. I think one of the most interesting things about your story, Chase, is that the sort of inaugural company of Dakota Group, Taylor Cooperative, is a custom suit and, and tailor shop, but it's not your first foray into that business. You actually had a, a suit right. kind of custom suit shop years ago as a young entrepreneur. So take us back to like how you, you know, your path into entrepreneurship as a very mm. young entrepreneur and how you stumbled into this industry of custom tailored suits. 
Yeah. Well, what hey, you're not real quick, saying, but before before you do yeah, that, Chase, the, sure. the the beautiful thing about your story is that Kevin and I constantly get calls from folks that are trying to build a holding company before they've bought their first business. Yeah. So your story right. today is a fascinating one for anybody who's listening that wants to build a holding company and is thinking about making that first acquisition. So it'll be fascinating to kind of hear the realities of what a build like this looks like. So anyway, yeah, we'll get uh, there. But start I, off I, with, think uh, Taylor. I think I used the word holding company after I had a holding company, which is typically the opposite. So we, we stumbled <laughs> into it completely right. accidentally and, and naively. But yeah, rewinding the tapes, I guess, Kevin, what you're not saying, we were we hiked Mount Kilimanjaro together. And on a late night in the tent, we were all going around talking about like our biggest, I, I don't even remember the prompt, but I remember just sharing 15 minutes of raw failure with the group. And yeah. and, and yeah. yes, let's go deep. We could kind of come back to it. But I've always been attracted to entrepreneurship. I'm an entrepreneur. Ever since, like right out of high school, my career has been a string of entrepreneurial projects. And one of my one of my first businesses was coming off the heels of living out in Asia. I relocated out to the Philippines for work. And I was out there for a little less than a year and ended up buying a couple of custom suits in the Far East, some from Hong Kong, some from Vietnam, some from Thailand. Anyone who's been out to Asia has had a similar experience to what I had, which is you jump in the back of a tuk-tuk in Bangkok and they get paid if they swing by <laughs> custom suit shops and upsell you to go buy a custom suit. And I was hooked they, they get kickbacks. I think it's uh, they they fill up their gas tank if if you buy a custom suit. I later learned. But oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I bought a bunch of custom suits living out in Asia, and was fascinated with the product. Uh, was fascinated with the supply chain. I had one custom suit made in Hong Kong that was just a work of art. Just felt immaculate. And I had another custom suit made in Vietnam that was falling apart in the plane ride home. And, and that, that kind of captured my imagination of what's the difference and, and how do you make a, a quality yeah. custom suit. So I moved back to Utah. And at 19, I started a company and raised some venture capital around this idea of importing custom suits into the States. And we had a distributed sales model. We were hiring personal clothiers, we called them, to go out in the homes and offices of our clients and sell affordable custom clothing. And it was an awesome, it was like my MBA in the world of hard knocks. We grew from zero to a right. million a year at, at our high point in multiple states. I was this young rookie at the helm of this company, 22 years old, trying to act like I had it all together with this board of, of VCs and investors with silver hair and wisdom that I had not yet uh, gotten in my career. But, but it sparked the, so, the yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so, so pause there for a second, because, you know, I hear 19 years old, you've, you're like virtually fresh out of high school, right? Maybe a year here, you, yeah. you go overseas for a temporary assignment for work and this pivots into, I'm going to launch my own company and I'm going to go raise VC capital. I, you know, I don't, I don't know many 19 or 20 year olds thinking like that. I'm just curious what it was. Was it earlier in your background? Was it something kind of you were exposed to fresh into the workforce? What was it that turned you onto this idea that, yeah, I as a 19-year-old kid still effectively can go raise millions of dollars from sophisticated Silicon Valley types and, and ballsy business? Yeah, it's super I mean, gutsy. Like anything, it sounds you know, it sounds better, you know, when you look back years ahead in a simplified <laughs> format, but like at the time, you know, I, I, I was importing suits for 
you know, my dad and for my friends. And, and it took someone like literally grabbing me by the shoulder saying, Chase, this is a business. This is not a hobby. You need to incorporate. And, you know, I, I had a co-founder and we, we started making more suits and getting more in revenue. And I had someone else grab me by the shoulders and say, Chase, like you should raise money. There's there's in investors out there that are, you know, willing to write a check for something like this. And, and we raised a small, you know, angel round and and I didn't know much about the world of Silicon Valley and venture, but as I started to kind of play in that yeah. space, I started to surround myself with people where that was that was the norm. Utah was going through quite the technology burst. Omniture had just sold. You know, we, WordPerfect yeah. was based out of Utah, and it spawned all of the success that really percolated through the ecosystem. Where there was a lot of money being raised in in Utah, and Utah is often called. Ironically, Silicon Slopes now, there's, there's a really big presence of entrepreneurship yep. tech. And so, yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds like at 19, I went from, you know, one suit to raising VC, but it was 18 months of <laughs> meandering, confused in the hills, trying to figure out what to go do about it, right? Got it. So your your start was really like your next door neighbor, you know, wants a suit for church. And you're like, well, I, I got a guy in Hong Kong. Let me yeah. hook you up and you just add a, a, add a little moment. margin. I mean, that was really the birth story here. Totally. I mean, our big moment was um, a buddy of mine. He had a ton of extended family in from out of town. This was before we even incorporated and said, hey, I have like eight of my brothers in town. And I told them about what you do. Can you come over? And I called up my business partners the day after Christmas. And we drive over and walk out with a $6,000 check and felt like we had won the lottery. And, uh, and that's kind of what got us uh, really moving. So, yeah, it, the, the game yeah. of zero to one is just so fundamentally different from one to two, right? It's you're, you're trading yeah. blood, sweat, tears in order to go create something that at the time doesn't look like a clear path to success. But on, on the way back, looking backward, if you squint your eyes, you can kind of see those lines connecting those dots that, that get it there. But, yeah, we had a great product. Yeah. We, we found product market fit easily. It was an awesome, an awesome yeah. client experience. And... We were we were growing really quick, and so we we raised a ton of, of capital, you know, hundreds of thousands at a time, and then eventually, you know, millions at a time. I think in total we raised two or three million bucks in BC, and it's wow. you know when when you raise that amount of capital, you're you're buying growth, you're investing aggressively in right. trying to go capture market share, and we had a really great addressable market. We were expanding into multiple states. And next thing I knew, I was running an organization. I was just wholly unqualified to own and operate, but it was a blast. It was, uh, it was, you know, one thing after another. I remember in my third or fourth year, we had outgrown four or five factories out in the far East. We just kept growing through factories and I would be out in China multiple times a year. And in this case, I had to drop everything and fly out to China to go solve a weird integration problem with our platform and our factory. And you had to fly out there, solve the problem and, and fly back. And yeah, fast forwarding a little bit, it's, it was a, you know, I, I ended up walking into the, the boardroom one day, arriving to the board meeting, what I thought was a couple minutes early, but I was the last one in the room and seated in front of me was the full board and two sheets of paper, my buyout agreement and my severance agreement. And at 23, 24, I got ousted from my baby that I started and sacrificed so much. And wow. it was, it was quite the, yeah. the journey for me and. Looking back, I am grateful for that experience. I, you learn a lot when you go from zero to one and, and go through so much growth. Right. And it, it had me really um, reflect a lot about uh, me as an operator, as an entrepreneur, and the, the style of company I really want to uh, build as, as an operator. Was that, was that all sort of post hoc ex 
exploring and kind of introspection that you did? Or, or was there ever a time during the journey while you're acting as CEO of this company where you were really starting to feel and maybe realize like this thing's growing, this, the, the growth here of this company is outpacing my growth as a 22 year old executive, you know, maybe I need to start thinking differently. D- did that happen like while you're in the thick of it or did this all kind of come afterwards as you've been able to put some experience, you know, more experience under your feet, disconnect from the company and really look back and start to see that in the rearview mirror? Yeah, I don't feel like I was reflecting a lot in that time. You know, I was working 60, 70, 80 hour work weeks. Uh, the pressure yeah. was just you tremendous. Were, you, you, you were mad. Were you- I, I was insane. I was, I was so committed to making the company work that I was giving it everything I had. And, and yeah, I mean, I think that looking back, I, maybe there were moments where I was like, sheesh, I might not be the guy for the job here. But in order to fool everyone else that I had it all together, I felt like I also had to fool myself. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I was voraciously reading and listening to audiobooks and surrounding myself with other entrepreneurs. But when you're growing that quickly and that's your first startup and you're in your early 20s, it's so disorienting. You just don't have context of what normal company building looks like, what a normal CEO's day-to-day looks like, how to lead people. You know, my board forced me to go hire a really senior COO and we spent more time arguing over just the dumbest things throughout the week than actually trying to go move the company forward. And yeah, it was, it was, it was quite the adventure. And, and on one hand, it was successful. We, we, we built a company that was thriving, thousands of customers, multiple states. For me, it was successful and I learned a ton about myself and learned a lot about, yeah. you know, again, what kind of career I want to build in the realm of entrepreneurship. But at the time, it felt like a complete flop. It felt like a total failure that was public and, you know, the shame associated with running a company that doesn't work out. It was my whole identity. You can't work 60, 70 hour work weeks and not have it be your whole identity. So, you know, it was a very shaping moment for me. I don't think I was going through the, the, that time, especially after having been fired, thinking this will be good for me. You know, this is a really shaping, defining moment. It just felt horrible. But looking back, obviously you can kind of see it. What was it like being fired, Chase? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's an important message. There's a lot of people that are listening to this that are prospective buyers that are thinking about doing, you know, a traditional search versus a self-funded search. We're thinking about bringing in investors into a transaction. And I, I don't think that there's enough of a realization that more than just the dollars they're giving you and the equity they're taking in the company, they're also incrementally taking control from you. So you you know the idea that I'm going to go be an entrepreneur and buy a business and become my own boss is undermined to an extent the more people you add to your cap table and a variety of different yeah. approaches. Sure. And so you had a group of people tell us about the cap table and what it was like being fired from a company that you founded. Yeah, well about the cap table. So every time we raise a round of financing dilution, you know, impacts everyone. You're you're just continuing to raise money and what good looks like when yeah. you're raising VC is, you know, owning 20, 30 percent um, at exit. Th- that's rare. Uh, you know, it's very common for these founders to get crammed down into single digits. Uh, I can't remember exactly where I was, but it was definitely north of single digits. But what's it like to get fired? I mean, so it's it's I definitely I'll blame it on my youth and maybe hubris. But I think for for entrepreneurs who are in that position, the best possible thing you can do is recognize your investors make a bet in you individually and in a bet and a bet in the company. And your job as the leader is to somehow grow and develop 
as fast or faster than your company. And when you go buy a small business and you're compounding with inflation or growing 10, 20%, it's very doable as long as you're reflective and you know investing in yourself. When you're growing thousands of percentage points a year, it's, it's quite challenging, especially for someone in their early 20s. And, and that's why you have a board. That's why you have advisors. That's why these young, you know, yeah. Silicon Valley entrepreneurs try to surround themselves with, with good, smart money where there's some wisdom in the room to help you make those decisions. I think in the good times when, when things were going well, I, I was surrounded by brilliant people who were acting as advisors. When times were bad, I, I think I would tend to revert to, don't worry, we've got it all together. And, and here's my plan. And don't worry about it. I'll take care of it as opposed to, you know, what I would advise one of our operators or perhaps someone in, in traditional search is, hey, we have a problem and I, I want to bring you in so we can co-work on this together and figure out how to navigate it. You're the jockey helping guide the business. You're not Superman trying to go, you know, ensure that everything goes perfectly to plan because company building's messy. If there's one thing I've learned across, you know, a dozen companies in my career is things take twice as long. It costs three times as much every single time, even when you have conservative expectations, it's messy. And so your job as the entrepreneur and capital allocator is to really have that, that head on your shoulders and, and help those around you really look at problems objectively as opposed to masking so, them and acting like you have it together. So put differently, you know, and what I hear you saying is in the, in those tough times, you were, you pivoted a little bit into like sales role to the board rather than sort of coming to them hat in hand of like, Hey, we got a problem and I could really use your help. Is, oh. I mean, is that effectively the, the, the idea is look at these folks actually as advisors. That's why they're there. They want to help. They don't want to be reacting when shit's really hit the fan. They, they want to be right as stuff's getting difficult, like bring them in and, and rely on them to help. Exactly right. Now that I'm on the other side of the table, right, working with our operators who are, who are trying to do the same thing, solve these problems is, you know, the best operators shine in moments of challenge like that. That's a moment to really come to the table and work collectively on a problem. There's always problems in company building. And so, yeah, coming at it um, from an ally standpoint as opposed to a salesperson standpoint, that's, that's a good call out. Well, on that on that note, while we have a referee on the phone, Eric, there's a few things I, I feel like I need yeah, to let you know about. For sure. <laughs> just, just well, kidding. Kevin, he brings up a really interesting point, and we we watch a lot. You know, through our firm, we watch a lot of younger folks. You know, they, they put that in quotations, I guess, relative to how young you were. But you know, for you know, you know, freshly minted MBAs that go and buy businesses yeah. that haven't ever been in there in the company building. And you talk about having a board or people to advise you. And we've seen some searchers who have raised capital and have brought on, you know, smart advisors and others that are completely going on their own, first-time entrepreneur, first-time business buyer, leaving a corporate gig and are going to go buy a, you know, a, a, you know, an SMB. I won't use a specific example. What advice would you give them, Chase, based on your experience across multiple businesses in terms of what type of support you need and how you go find that? in your business? And do you necessarily have to give up equity in order to have somebody, you know, invested enough in order to feel like you can take their counsel? Yeah. Oh, man, so many thoughts come to mind. So I mean, first of all, operating a business is hard. It's lonely. It's challenging. You hit new problems every day. It's a grind. It, you know, it's not a two year sprint and exit. It's it's a multi year project. And so you know, there's there's kind of there's several different approaches. It's managing your headspace on on one hand. It's having a peer group. It's having people you can go to in in times of crisis for wisdom and and thoughts and perspective. But it's also like 
making sure you're you're pairing yourself with the right business and opportunity. You know, we're, we're starting to see as interest rates go up and as more people come into the space of ETA, we're starting to see, unfortunately, a lot more stories of failure, of uh, bankruptcy, of, of companies not working out. And and so I think going in with with the right advisors is a good idea, if, if, especially if you're coming in from like a finance background or coming in right out an, an MBA and you've never operated a company. Operating can be really challenging, and and that transition is a really tough transition to make. And so, reflecting, are you up for that challenge individually? Do you do you have a clear perspective of what that challenge looks like? One of my best friends, he before he bought his business, went on a bit of a tour across the U.S. and went from kind of small business to small business, shadowing what a day in the life is like to get a picture of like, can I can I do this? What does the what does it look like off Twitter? you know, where there's no glamour, you know, do I have the ability to do that? So yeah, I mean, advice for that, I, I look at traditional search almost similar to the way I look at the beginning of my career. It was really high stakes, you know, didn't own the, the majority of the company or the entirety of the company, yep. but surrounded by a lot of wisdom and the ability to go work on something a little bit bigger. I look at self-funded search as an opportunity to really control the cap table, continue to have majority control and, and something you can really build for years and years and years without a pressure to, well, without a strong pressure to exit. So I think any entrepreneur just needs to take inventory of why are you doing this in the first place? What does good look like? What, what, what does that look yeah. like 10 years out and work backward? And entrepreneurship is just a vehicle to to align your work with what you want out of life. That's the beautiful part of it, right? And so being really intentional with what you want your your outcome to look like if things go well, and then how you build uh, with that in mind, that, that's the secret to success, I think. But let me let me double click on the, the board concept, though, because I think this is a fascinating one. You know, I'm, I'm buying a business tomorrow as a freshly minted MBA or a corporate guy who's never been a entrepreneur before. Based on your experience, Chase, what type of support do I need in terms of peer groups and board composition and where do I find the board? How do I incentivize and what what would you put together if you were starting over from scratch in, in, in one of those yeah. capacities? I, I mean, so I sit on two advisory boards for free, for fun of, of two folks who have went and bought a small business. And and I think what you'll find is, is a lot of people are willing to um, get involved and support you. Um, and forming an advisory board, or if, if you're required to, forming a board, uh, an official board of directors can be really valuable as a sounding board. One of the things we tell our operators is, is the thing, one of the most important things that makes the difference between a great leader and a good leader is you have all these potential decisions to make, all these potential problems to go solve, and identifying of that list of 400, which three are the most important for you to go sink your teeth into. An advisory board or, or a board of directors can be really critical in helping you step out of the, the forest and, and see that forest through the trees. And so I, I recommend it. I, I think having a, an advisory board and having people you can go to, um, one, it's easier to build than you might think. And, and two, it, it can become a really crucial way of getting out of your own head and making sure you're thinking things through uh, from a strategic, uh, you know, optimized way. Yeah. Are How you did you? What I'm thinking, Kevin. <laughs> Chase, would you like to be the first met? Yeah. <laughs> How are I'm you with building and scaling law firms? <laughs> what do you? How do you feel about professional services, Chase? Yeah. <laughs> Depends on what type. <laughs> That's funny. So, 
So talk to, I want to talk in, in a second about some of your lessons learned that you, that you used and incorporated into launching your later ventures. But just before we move on from your first venture a little bit, is there, is there anything you've thought about specifically to that company kind of looking back like, oh man, if I had done this differently and, and maybe we've already touched on one, which is rely on the board a little more, but is there anything else that comes to mind where you're like, man, if I, if, if I had done this, this, and this differently, like, I feel like those were the keys that led to my eventual ouster that could have looked a little bit different. What, what did that look like for you? I mean, I think this is overly simplified, but I think it was a beautiful business with the wrong capital structure. When you raise okay. a, a significant sum of outside capital with a ton of pressure, especially in the short to midterm, to go and drive growth and and perform, and I kind of watched this business lose its soul in that process. It's a phenomenal product. Like from a customer standpoint, it, it was an outstanding business. Great net promoter scores, yeah. awesome margins, great team, up into the right trajectory. It was not profitable because we were playing the game of risk and expanding across the board, you know, aggressively trying to go by growth. And so I think a lot about making sure that the, the company is paired with the right capital structure, making sure that, you know, we're really passionate today at Dakota about this really long-term and patient hold model. I think there's some businesses that do great with a ton of capital and a need to go drive growth from Uber to Twitter. There's some companies yeah. that really just have no business raising that form of outside capital and make really remarkable small businesses uh, or medium-sized businesses or maybe even large businesses, but will never be a moonshot home run uh, technology venture. That's just not the kind of company that it was. So yeah, I, I think that was another uh, takeaway. It felt like yeah. we were playing out the the arrival fallacy uh, in real life. You know, we were trading short-term comfort and, you know, work-life balance um, in exchange for maybe yeah. we'll be able to exit this thing. Um, and so we were just very, um, yeah, we, we were forcing a lot of short-term pressure into that business as opposed to running it like the beautiful business that it could have been. We just didn't have that option after we'd raised some capital on it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Well, so let's so let's fast forward a little bit then. So you're you're ousted from this original company. So what what was the next step for you? It you know it sounds like maybe there was a little bit of licking of wounds before kind of turning introspective and and kind of a period of growth and things like that. So just let, let's spend a couple of minutes on it, and then I want to you know I want to dive deeper on your launch of you know, Taylor Cooperative and Dakota Group, et cetera. But yeah. what went on in that interim period? What what were you doing? What how did you, you know, recover and bounce back and, and yeah. kind of move forward from there? Yeah, it took me a few years to really know what to do about some of those thoughts in the sense of I, I knew I wasn't fulfilled. You know, I, I knew entrepreneurship fulfilled me, company building and team building. That was my North Star. But the experience yeah. I had was, was far from fulfilling, not just because of the catastrophic ending, but because of the style in which we were running the company. And, and I had those thoughts. I don't yeah. think I could have put it as, as pointedly as I just did, but I, I, I felt that pull. And so I, I spent years doing various startup ventures, raising capital, continuing to try to kind of build uh, moonshot zero to one companies. And if you fast forward several years, me and my best friend, Adam, who's now my business partner in Dakota Group, we were taking a hike down in Southern Utah. 
And we drove down to this hike with no intentions of starting a business together. And we, we returned with a, a semblance <laughs> of a business plan. And he was really kind of picking at, you know, it seems uh, this, this kind of dichotomy that we're talking about, it seems like it was such a great business. Why was it not thriving? Like what, what was the yeah. challenge? And we decided, you know, what would be incredible is if we could start a beautiful lifestyle business a brick and mortar custom built on, on the same premise and customer promise of the first business, but not raise a dollar of outside capital, not attempt to be a multi-state, you know, 50 person organization, but really just something that is small, high quality, a great business with great loyal customers, a GM, like out of the gates, essentially. But, you know, what would happen if we went yeah. and started a, not a surf shop, but a lifestyle business, you know, closer to a surf shop sure. than, than the company that we had started. And 30 days later, we, we found lease space. We closed on our, our first, well, we signed the lease agreement and we had our first customer. So we went from idea to revenue in like 30 wow. days. And 18 months wow. later, incredible. We, it, was, it was fun. And uh, a million or 18 months later, we were doing a million bucks a year top line. It was just a business that just kind of blossomed and, and grew. And the shop expanded as we went. And I've talked about this before, but the, the style of company building when you don't have outside capital and that, that high pressure feels a lot more like sculpting a bust is, is what I say, where initially you're, you're hacking at it and you're one, you're like pulling off clay and these broad brush movements. And, and then you're two, you're, you're taking out the knife and you're shaping the ear and the nose and you're starting to see a semblance of a head. And then you're three and four, you have the scalpel and you're fine tuning. It, it felt like we were really tinkering on a business and, uh, and it was improving all the time. And that was so fulfilling. It really scratched that entrepreneurial itch that, that I had. Um, but in a way that felt more sustainable and long-term than what I was building before. And we, yeah, every year that business got a little bit better. And this was six, seven years ago. We, we founded Taylor Cooperative. Our, our thinking at the time was we would keep it largely independent of our time. And it would maybe, if, if we're fortunate enough, we could be throwing off some cash flow so that it could fund other entrepreneurial projects on the side. And what we found is we fell in love with Taylor Cooperative and we fell in love with the idea of building small business and what it means to have a small business that's really a part of the fabric of a community and, and, and how you can build a, a strong, exceptional small business. And uh, every year just got a little bit more fun, a little bit better. And that, that's ultimately what kind of led us to 2020 when we formed Dakota Group and made our first acquisition. So if I'm hearing the origin story right, though, this wasn't, this wasn't launched with a kind of master, grand, three, five, ten-year vision, et cetera. I mean, what, was it literally like starting a custom clothier wasn't even on your radar when you're driving down to southern Utah? And it, it just it grew out of effectively a deep conversation with someone that really pushed on what what fulfills you and why didn't that one work? How could we do it differently? And you just had this aha moment. I mean, is that kind of what happened? Yeah, they were long, grueling days of, you know, 10, 15 miles, nothing to do but talk. And, and it felt like Adam was just yeah. like, well, why didn't you? Okay, but what about, okay, well, why didn't you do that? And, and, and by the end of it, it was like, yeah, you know what? I think we have something here. Why don't we just go start this thing up? Yeah. And, we Let's started a cooperative on $750 and, you know, sale one funded sale two and sale one and two funded sale three. Yeah. And we just kind of grew it and bootstrapped it organically from there. Yeah. Was there any piece of you, this is a, a little bit off topic, but before we go to Dakota group broadly, 
What was there any piece of you, you know, with the change in time, a little bit uncomfortable with the industry again? Like how much work did did you put into what is the competitive landscape now, you know, many years later? You know, it feels like at least from an outsider looking in, that's not huge into fashion, right? People are wearing far less suits. People are in offices yeah. far less. Like yeah, yeah, how yeah. much Good of that point. calculus weighed into, you know, I, there were a lot of lessons to be learned from this business many years ago and we could do it better, but maybe it's just not the right time anymore. How did you, how did you confront that issue? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, this was very pre-COVID. And as a note, interestingly, luxury suit shops are performing better than ever because while suit volume is down in terms of people buying a suit, when people do go to buy a suit, they want something nicer. So the organic annual growth rate of Taylor Cooperative has been outstanding in seven years. Will it go so on? You're like, Kevin, you're Kevin, like men's warehouses or... Yeah, the men's warehouses... Is that the idea like men's warehouses struggling, but custom is... Yeah, they're consolidating. They're shutting when, down. When, when was the last time you bought a suit, Kevin? <laughs> oh God! I where did you one, get it from? I bought one for a wedding. I bought it from Brooks Brothers. It's the only place I bought suits for year ever since I became a lawyer. Are those good, are those good suits, Brooks Brothers? You tell me, Chase. I, you I, know, honestly, I, I've always yeah. liked them. I thought they were good. Yeah, I mean, like any large scale brick and mortar, you're you're paying for a lot of things that aren't the raw materials when when you do swipe your credit card. Yeah. So the value is, I would say, mediocre, but the quality is is, is pretty decent. You, the, yeah. There's there's certain things that you want to. Pay like, man, to. you're you overpaid. Yeah. You got taken for a ride. That was a, but that was a, a very decent, polite way of a, saying you got fleeced. It's a decent. He's like, also, Brooks Brothers, don't sue me for defamation. It was my opinion. For the there's certain brands. Well, well the, uh, the, the fl- yeah, no, there's certain brands I advise people to steer away from, like, you know, Hugo Boss, for example. Like, you know, if you look at a pie chart of where your money goes, it's like 40% brand sales and marketing and just, you know, yeah. diluted amount toward the actual product. Brooks Brothers tends to do yeah. pretty well. Suit Supply is a, a really great alternative, but I'm quite biased. You know, custom is really the, the way to go in the sense of you're not just buying the raw materials and the fabric and the quality of construction. You're buying something that's made to fit you and flatter your body type and look good on you. And um, well, I think that's the biggest thing for me. I, I infrequently put on a suit, but when I do, like, it's never going to fit right. Even the day I pick it up from having been been tailored, yeah. like, I, I get the value proposition. The flip side is, as someone who wore suits routinely daily while I was at my first firm, Cravath, it was it was required. But you yeah, know, yeah. very often after that, since I left Big Law, I mean, I can. I can count in the last five years yeah. on one hand the amount of times yeah. I put a suit on, which I, which was the impetus for my question. And you know, so I I get it. We're remote. We're work from home. So right. maybe we're I'm different. just not seeing it. But I I haven't worn understand. a suit in uh, a couple of years, but I need to probably need to soon. I'd let, you guys want to talk about business? I want to talk about suits for a second. Let's let's just <laughs> let's take a detour for yeah. just a moment, let's Chase. Another the the So I I like suits. I like suit supplies because I think it's a decent, decently priced suit that is customized, yeah. which, by the way, this episode is now sponsored by Suit Supply. So send us our it's check, okay. but uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, uh, but so um, what, what is a good custom suit entry level? I just want to get you know one or two suits because I wear them every couple years or once a, wedding, a year, a couple times a, a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to get a couple really nice suits. I don't want to break the bank. What's the what's the price and how do you go about where where would you start? Yeah. 
you should probably plan to spend a little over $1,000 for just a foundational investment suit, something that's going to last you decades. If you take care of it right, it's, it's something potentially you hand down to your kids, right? Um, because what you're buying at that level is you're getting out of the synthetics, out of the fabrics that have some form of plastic, polyester, rayon in it, and you're getting into a really kind of quality wool. Um, but you're also getting the... Uh, hopefully at that price point, a decent construction. There's there's a term in the industry called canvas, horsehair canvas that is on the inside of the jacket. And, you know, back in the Industrial Revolution, the way to quickly mass produce suits was you use essentially glue, a fancy form of glue to, to bring the inner and outer shell together. That's called fusible. You fuse the jacket. The problem with a fused jacket, while it's quick and cost effective, is it starts to bubble. Have you ever seen those suits that like, it's almost like cheap yeah. on a car. It starts to like delaminate. You start to get that effect. In yeah. The around like the stitching at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just doesn't drape softly. It doesn't, it doesn't fit the contour of, of the silhouette as it should. You know, suits are one of the oldest articles of clothing in the world. They, they are highly inspired by the design of military jackets. And they're meant fundamentally to make guys look good. You've got broad shoulders, shoulder padding. It's a long, elongated V. It heightens the body. It has lapels that make your chest look a little bit bigger. It, it's it's really a power outfit, right? That's why it has been the, yeah. the uniform of business for decades. And you want that, that drink. Thinking about it, I'm, I'm reflecting on a certain president that wears suits every single day of his life, which is a, is a choice. Please that continue. is a choice. That is a choice. No, anyway, it's it's fascinating. There's there's infinite numbers of things that make a suit, you know, high quality versus low quality. And when you're a mass producer of suiting, you're trying to figure out, okay, how do we construct the suits? What materials are we using? What form of buttons? And uh, yeah, the question is whether it's you know suiting on its on its surface. This is a classic item. It's not like a fast fashion item that you expect to own for three years and then go get a new one to replace it. And so for that reason, it's it's a special category within clothing that, you know, you want to invest uh, more so that it's, you know, lasting and design it in a way where it's it's meant to kind of outlast some of those trends that cycle in and out. Also, it's just a fun experience. You know, a lot of guys grow up watching Bond films yeah. and you know, kind of thinking about this idea of coming into a bespoke suit shop and fabrics being laid on you in front of a mirror and getting measured. While we're on suits and like, forgive the slightly more, you know, personal to me question, but I'm sure there are listeners who, who approach an investment in clothing like this from the same mentality I do. You know, I've, I've struggled for a long time to get in shape, continuing to try. And it's one of, one of the reasons why I, I never have and rarely invest in expensive clothes because it's always that, well, if I put it off six more months, you know, I've lost a few more pounds, you know, Kevin, it, I, go ahead, Eric. Can I interrupt you for a second? Please. Car dealership guy just went public. Oh, wow. Breaking news. <laughs> You're on yeah, Twitter. He released a 13 and a half minute video. This is car dealership guy. It's Chase Murdoch. After two years on this platform, the secret is finally out. Who the fuck is car dealership guy is the title of this video. <laughs> I mean, I love the balls on that, that video, though. This is full production. Oh, my yeah. God. Is that a custom tailored coat? 
that were no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, that's fascinating. I'll have to watch it afterwards. This this dude built a five hundred thousand person follower count in like a year, right? A year and a December half. December of twenty twenty one. That's what believable. A couple of That's years. Okay. Un- he built a media business off of a Twitter account in two years. That's wild. That is incredible. Anyways, sorry to interrupt, guys. I just thought that was no. That's interesting. Somewhat breaking news here in our, our little niche industry. Our little <laughs> this goes little live. Niche, uh, week. We'll, we'll break the news. <laughs> this <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So I, so so back to it. How how do you how do you answer that question before we move on from suits, Chase? When when you're talking to people who are like, that sounds great for you that you know, you can have that chase, that suit for two decades. But if I go invest $1,500, $2,000 in a suit today, you know, a a year ago, it's going to salvation or or a year from now, it's going to salvation army, hopefully. Right. Yeah. It's tricky because a well-tailored suit really flatters the body and and like, it, it looks great. It's, it's slimming effect. It's, it's a, you know, it's designed to make guys look good fundamentally. But you're right. On the other hand, when weight fluctuates, it can be challenging because the more fitted it is, the more you're feeling that the weight fluctuation, right? We, yeah. when you do go custom, you can you can actually let the jacket out a great deal more than when you buy something off the rack. And you, I've had clients come in over the years where we go take it in a few inches, a couple of years later, take it out a few inches and bring it in and out. But there's also performance yes. strength yes. back which is something we're seeing a lot of innovation around. The old, you know, Italian mills that have been around for centuries are now investing, you know, a ton of R&D to keep up with the likes of Lululemon. It's fascinating to watch this. These old Italian mills are trying to figure out how to make it water resistant, how to make stretch performance fabrics. And so the industry is definitely shifting in small ways, but it's shifting. So sometimes that stretch fabric is the right move. Chase, how, how often do you wear suits? And I'll tell you what my problem is with, with buying or investing in an expensive suit. And it's, it's what you just referenced. This is a chart of my weight from the last 10 years. I shared it on social media yesterday. And look at those fluctuations, guys. And a bunch of people followed suit. They shared their charts, too, because I guess I'm not the only person who has a Fitbit here. But from, <laughs> you know, from, from 185 to 170, you know, all the way up to... 200 at during COVID we were having fun during COVID you know is it is it possible that one suit would have fit me throughout that entire period of time so the most important fundamentals of a suit and you guys are testing my suit knowledge I tend not to talk about this I love it it's been years since (laughs) thinking about these things I mean you thought we had you on to talk about business yeah how confused I was so the fundamental elements of a suit are the shoulders shoulders tend not to adjust as you're putting on weight or losing weight the length of the jacket, which needs to be proportional to your height and your body type. So it's it's really in that waist, right, where you button the coat. So you'll feel it. You'll feel it as you put on weight. I, I think we tend to say you feel every like eight to 10 pounds is, is about an inch, maybe half an inch, somewhere in that range, which is when you want to start thinking about making adjustments. So if you're inside that, that six pound range, you know, it may feel different, but it's not going to fundamentally look different. If you're fluctuating in a 10 to 15 pound range yeah you might totally feel that so you know beyond something where it's like get a stretch fabric and cut it you know have your tailor cut it in a way where that weight adjustment is is planned i'll tell you something funny though is we get a lot of wedding clients come in that's 30 40 percent of our revenue and they'll come in and they'll say 
without fail, inevitably, okay, well, this is my weight now. But when I come back in for my fitting in a month or two, I promise you guys, I'm, I'll I'm be 20 be pounds less. I'll be 20 pounds lighter. And they never are. Yeah. You know, so, so it's a kind they of a fun joke <laughs> of like, yeah, the client was really insistent that we're going to cut this so that it fits future clients. <laughs> and sometimes future client is a little rose-tinted in the way they're viewing the world. <laughs> that's, that's fair. It's a, I think there's, a, I think there's a, an analogy there for entrepreneurs, right? And where, <laughs> how... How smooth sailing we think things are going to go in our businesses. Are like, well, this is how it is today, but two months from now, like, I promise you, I will be sleeping eight hours a night. Yeah. I've been saying that for eight Like months. I said, things take twice <laughs> as long and cost three times as much as you expect every single time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's, let's shift a little bit more. So, so then Taylor Cooperative, it's another startup, effectively. You're back to kind of startup entrepreneur. You start from scratch, $750, which is, which is mind-blowing to me. What do you um, mean $750? That's how, I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe let's pause there for a second. You said that you, you started Taylor Cooperative with your partner, Adam, with $750, right? And the, yeah. the first suit you built paid for the second suit and so on. So what did that look like to start with such little invested capital? Yeah, I mean, it was fully bootstrapped, right? And so the shop in the very beginning was this teeny 700 square foot, you know, beautiful uh, showroom, but teeny and not street facing. And then eventually we expanded and expanded from there. And, you know, we were slanging suits ourselves directly for the first six months. And eventually we could hire our, our first person. So it was very bootstrapped and very cash constrained. We went uh, without pay for uh, about a year and a half, two years to varying degrees. So when you think about all in, you know, it was a bit more than 750 bucks, but in terms of out of pocket in order to, you know, get the business started, it was more of a time investment, blood, sweat, and tears than it was a capital yeah. investment, which tends to be the case for zero to one, right? You know, one to yeah. two where you're acquiring business, you're, you're bringing in capital, you're, you're sometimes personally guaranteeing debt to go buy that thing that's been built we had to go sacrifice to go build that thing in the first place. And what was your one? Was that like your zero to one? Was that getting you to the position where you could bring an operator into Taylor Cooperative and start to step back from the active day-to-day -day management role? Was that? Yeah, I mean, that was, was that one of your... many goals, right? I mean, like initially we were getting a lot of product feedback. We were trying to figure out how to go yeah. repeatedly and sustainably acquire customers through digital marketing. We were trying to build our online presence, launch our website. We were trying to get repeat customers coming back in. We were launching new products. You know, it was it was so multifaceted, right? It's just that's that's the, the battlefield yeah. of the first couple of years starting a business is, you know, you don't have departments. You don't have things already stood up. You're, you're really having to stand everything up for the first time. It's fun. It's, yeah. it's incredibly fulfilling, but it's a ton of work. And uh, yeah, the goal was to really get a general manager so that we could kind of get on to the next thing and, yeah. and you know, not put all of our career inside this one small business. It's been a great business to us, but I think Adam and I both wanted to work on something a little bit beyond this single business. And yeah. to us, the the naive vision at the time was if we could be drawing, you know, five six, seven, 10,000 a month each out of the business, that would be sufficient runway so that we could go and, and start whatever moonshot venture we wanted to on the side, really catalyzed by this small business. And like I said, you know, we were really naive in that. We, we ended up falling in love with really that, that process of building yeah. small business. And at some point we felt like we had a playbook 
for small business that was a little bit bigger than our, our suit shop. And we wanted to go try our hand at, yeah. at acquiring multiple businesses. So, so then let's, let's shift for the last segment here into the, into that discussion. And so, you know, it, it, I've heard repeatedly that you really fell in love with the, the suit shop, with that business, with sort of the long-term growth kind of feeling of the custom clothier, et cetera. So walk us through that shift then to the desire to build a diverse holding company, as opposed to either reinvesting in organic growth of Taylor Cooperative itself, or more of a, more of a roll-up model of like, okay, we've got a suit shop. Let, let's focus on the clothing or fashion industry and, you know, and, and kind of do things that are sort of vertically integrated or horizontally integrated to some extent, you know, what, walk through that calculus of, of what led you to this model of a diverse Holdco. Yeah. So at the time we were throwing off excess cash and we were trying to figure out, do we go reallocate all of it back into this one business? Do we sweep it and maybe go buy a cabin, you know, or do we do something weird in, in between? And neither option felt a bad alternative. It didn't feel like we wanted to go reallocate all of that money back into this business. We were reallocating yeah. some of it and the business was growing, but it didn't feel like something we wanted to go all in on. And on the other hand, it, it yeah. didn't feel like it was so formidable that we could start drawing you know, significant distributions out of. We wanted to go reinvest in something. And, and it was right as we were having those thoughts that we were presented with an off-market uh, acquisition opportunity. And that was our second business workshop, SLC. It was a essentially a WeWork, but for artists is one of the best ways to yeah. describe it. And um, it was run by uh, a founder who wasn't ready to retire, but this was her second um, project and, and she wasn't allocating enough time and energy into this business and wanted to transition it uh, off to someone who could really invest that time and energy into it. And we were looking at it and seeing a lot of overlap in our playbook. Uh, we felt like we could really help hone the brand, uh, help adjust the go-to-market yep. strategy, implement some price changes, um, and, and really go grow it. And we acquired uh, Workshop SLC in 2021. And in our first 12 months, and it, it was a teeny business, but in our first 12 months, we grew at something like four or 500%. Um, and we just went to town on this thing, brought it online, launched a website, grew it again the next year, some two or 300%. And we felt like by the end of that, we were like, you know what, this is, this is kind of working. It's, it's fun. A part of what we got kind of sharpened at was how to really go hire a good general manager who can focus on running the day-to-day -day and then fractionalize yeah. at the holding company this idea of, of shared services, of having marketing and, and finance where one business on its own can't afford a CMO, definitely not yeah. a CFO, but two businesses can start to really offset some of those costs. And this idea of a shared services model started to kind of get born in, in, in our minds, trying to figure out how, how do we go help give these companies a leg up. We've matured a lot since then. We've actually been on this tirade to go decentralize over the past 12 months. But at the time, it was our unfair advantage. We could really breathe fresh life and, and capabilities into this business that had a lot of uh, runway for growth. And, and that's what we did with Workshop SLC. So at the time, we weren't thinking about, let's go buy you know, multiple businesses. At the time, we said, this looks like a great business to go try our hand at. And it wasn't until maybe six to 12 months in to our experience with Workshop SLC that we were like, you know what, this, this looks like something we could spend the rest of our careers building, a diversified yeah. holding company focused on Utah and focused on you know, these Main Street businesses that 
are run by retiring owners that are typically led by a very passionate founder and a fire-eyed team of people committed to the product and the customer, but where there's a lot of room to go professionalize and that we can bring that, that expertise to the table and help unlock some of that growth. You know, I posted a, a tweet. Uh, I, I posted a tweet. I tweeted about uh, hopping on this conversation you, with you. No, 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 no. You posted, Kevin. Did I it post? Was po- it's just a post. There's no tweet anymore. Tweet is gone. It's a post. I didn't, I didn't X. Did I X? So you posted a po- You could say you posted a post or you could just say I post it. So please I, continue. I, I posted to the platform formerly known as Twitter. That's right. You uh, posted on X. A, a post. That just that we would be talking. And, and one of the questions that someone wanted to ask was how you evaluate, and, and you touched on it there a second ago about being kind of local to Utah. How do you evaluate that trade off of sort of keeping a local focus versus broadening, you know, into whether it's bordering states or nationwide or whatever to have a broader base of potential business acquisitions and, and business targets? What, what was that like? What's driving the, the local nature? Is it more kind of community focused? Is it just, is it, is it, you know, just sheer practicality of being able to hop in the car and drive to the business on a moment's notice? Uh, how, how, did, how do you evaluate that? And what led you guys to your focus on Utah specifically? Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's really fulfilling, right? It's, it's to be like part of a community building and, and helping shape Salt Lake, which is a very fast growing city. It's it's yeah. home for me and Adam. And this is, you know, this is the state I'll retire in. And and, and having businesses that are, are part of that fabric and a part of that growth is a really fulfilling thing to me in my career. And and, and same for Adam. And, and that's something that we like intentionally want to do with Takata Group is if you take a step back and look at the stats, it's it's kind of alarming. Small business is on the decline. Entrepreneurship and startups are on the decline. There's fewer small businesses per capita today than there ever have been in, in the history of the world. And, and post-COVID especially, we're seeing large corporations grow. And, and it's turning into this real, not to be dramatic, it's turning into this real David and Goliath story of small business is really what enriches a neighborhood and gives a, a city its distinction. And And, and it's really struggling. It's, it's, it's at an all-time low. And we've all seen, especially post-COVID, retiring small business owners not have buyers, not have something that's transferable and choose to shut down, as opposed to someone come in and steward that legacy. And every day it gets harder to recruit talent, to you know position products, to price, to market online. And, and, and so on, on one hand, that's kind of our, our, our passion. That's really the fuel that, that drives us. On the other hand, you know, we don't have outside capital. We, we, we don't have IRR targets we're trying to hit. We're, you know, this, this really is for me and Adam something of a, a lifestyle project. We, we commit to each other. We wanted to create a day-to-day that really transcends the, the normal goals of exit or retirement. You know, really, I think if we can carve out a day-to-day that's incredibly fulfilling, building and stewarding great community asset businesses, empowering awesome operators and leaders to, to grow their careers and grow companies, yeah and create a lot of uh, asset value and, and kind of financial return as we go, that's a, that's a really fun and fulfilling project. And we have that opportunity to do that, thankfully, because of uh, founding Taylor Cooperative and, and the ability to go build a holding company kind of one at a time in a really intentional and slow way where we're not out trying to go return capital or hit some return target you know, we're profitable, we're, we're growing. It's, it's something of a flywheel. You know, we, we buy good businesses, we work hard to make them great, and we go reallocate right. the profits into buying more businesses. I, I think if we had outside capital, a roll-up is, is 
strategically a, a better option. You you get to know that industry really well. There's there's a lot of uh, opportunity to make a dent in a certain industry. For me and Adam, the, the diversity is the fun. That's that's what makes our day to day exciting. You know, jumping from one. That's what's attracting you to it. Sure. So so it's it's very much something we've done to to keep the Kata Group on our terms and in a way that you know we don't feel like we're ever going to get bored of, of what we're building. It, it's also a good it's a good investment in the sense that holding yeah. companies are awesome vehicles for reinvestment and capital allocation at any given point in time if i call any of our operators up they have 10 or 15 potential investments that they'd really like to make in their business and we can pull those all together and stack rank them based on you know what makes sense irrespective of what business and so the diversity is 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 really fun and it's built in and the commitment to stay local to utah is both yeah part of our personal conviction of what we're trying to accomplish here in, in the community but also, yeah, the practicality of we don't want to spend our careers on planes and, and flying around different states. Kevin, let me let me ask him the most important question of the hour here, and I think this should be one of those little clips that we make because this is this I, is the question everybody's going to want to know. I suspect this is probably the question I was going to ask. Hit, hit us, Eric. All right, let's see. Should we say it at the same time, Kevin? Yeah, well, well, you guys just um, one, two, three. Kevin and I are just one, we are, two, three. Yeah. Chase, what you've 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 built businesses from zero to one. You've acquired businesses. Talk about the the difference between a startup from zero to one and acquiring. Where the two things fit together, if they do, if they're complementary, and and I guess more concretely, if you were to start over tomorrow. Are you doing what you did again? Are you starting a business so you can get the business chops and then going and acquiring? Are you skipping and going right to acquiring? Talk to us about building versus buying. Yeah. I, I'm grateful for the path we chose because for us, it allowed us to have a larger surface area of experiments. And we, we, you know, we, we acquired on a, on a smaller end. And by, by acquiring more businesses, it gave us more opportunity for just rapid fire compounding of learning, right? Just every day was a new problem and a new thing to go solve for. And it's the same in zero to one. You learn a lot more in zero to one because it's just all more encompassing. It's the world doesn't want a new business. And your job is to go create that business in a world kind of designed against you. Um, I think it's phenomenal for earning your chops as an operator. Um, Operating a business is challenging, full stop. And uh, I think it's harder in zero to one. It's there's trade-offs. There's reasons why we're doing that one to two game uh, today. Um, if if I had a rich uncle or was independently wealthy, I think to do it all over again, sure, I'd go buy businesses. I think you shortcut one of the hardest parts of company building, which is finding that product market fit and standing up systems and a team and some semblance of an asset. When you're going from zero to one, there's no asset, and you're trying to go create an asset, right? One to two, you're buying an asset and you're trying to build upon it. Uh, both are hard. By no means am I saying one to two is easy or not noble work. It's it's incredibly challenging, but it's a very different type of hard. So for us, where we are not capital allocators by trade, we're, we're not investors. Uh, our One of our distinctions as a holding company is our experience as operators. It was incredible for that route. And so you know, when I think about zero to one, I think it's an awesome proving grounds for yourself as an entrepreneur. It's a great way to go learn um, everything from sales and marketing to product to team leadership to operations to technology. One to two is a different predicament. It's taking something that someone has already built and trying to add to that. 
And that is also challenging. You're bringing in debt, so the risk profile is a little bit different, uh, or you're commonly bringing in debt. So it's, it's simply a trade-off. I think every, everyone who's inclined to get into entrepreneurship should kind of ask what they feel their, their unique skill set is and where their skills apply best, whether it's zero to one or one to two. But I, I, I'm grateful for having done both. I, I think it's made Adam and I sharper operators as a result of seeing both sides of that equation. Do you like one more than the other, Chase, just personally? Do you like the, the acquisition game or do you like the kind of I do. start with $750 in the pocket? I've always felt the one to two, one to 10 more reflects what like I'm good at and what I enjoy, yeah. which is a lot of systems and, and structure and, and operations. And Adam, I think his proclivity, I'd be curious what his answer is, but he, he loves the zero to one game. He's very inventive and, and he's kind of an idea guy and, and loves starting up new channels inside our existing businesses. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a balance. I think what we've yeah. Uh, had to do as a result of being cash constrained and, and uh, choosing not to have outside capital is go buy businesses that are a little bit smaller. We call it the death zone of small business. Business is doing less than five million a year in revenue, where it's kind of a comp. It's not black and white, zero to one or you know one to ten. It's this weird middle ground in between where we go and we buy businesses that have a product market fit established, where they have something good going. But we don't look at it as we're buying a matured, durable asset. We're looking at it as we're buying a platform or vehicle for growth into the next chapter. In other words, we like what's going on and we want to accelerate what's going on and bring this beautiful business into its second chapter. And that feels a lot more like, I mean, I'm going to butcher the zero to one analogy, but like 0.75 to, you know, to or 0.75 where, and that's, I think we found is our sweet spot coming from zero to one is, is entrepreneurial operators, but we're slowly gravitating and we've kind of moved up the chain with each acquisition that we've made as, as we've gone. Yeah. So I, I like the one to two game. So That's... pause, pause for just a second, Kevin, we should wrap since we've, we've got till three, it's two forty seven. Yep. We should wrap and then we can have time to get to record. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, let, so just to, to pick back up and, and wrap up here. So I think the final thing, at least on my mind and, and hopefully on listeners' minds, that, that's hearing a different style of hold co-building, right? That this isn't pressure cooker, you know, roll up as quick as you can, try and increase multiple from, from 3x to 10x and exit to private equity. Sounds a lot more lifestyle, slower growth, long-term play. What does that look like seven, eight years into doing this? What does the day in the life of Chase look like in that model that that may be different from you know a little bit more of the aggressive hold co model that people traditionally i think in the small business world are thinking about of like go 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 until we can exit five to seven years from now yeah well one i mean i i think it positions us well to be good potential stewards to sellers right as they're trying to figure out you know who, who do i sell yeah. to and how do i ensure that my legacy is is handled respectfully and by people who actually care and are going to be around right so we we, yeah. we feel like that makes us a good candidate for a retiring owner who they don't want to sell to a private equity like buyer they don't want to watch their their baby get folded into yeah. another company but also where we can bring it into a second chapter that's hopefully as exciting as its first chapter was, right? So it's not like we're just buying the thing uh, with a ton of debt and hoping we can keep up with inflation and just hold on as tight as we can. We're, we're actually trying to figure out, you know, 
Mr. Miss Seller, what, what were some things you you haven't been able to do with this business that if you could wave a wand, like what would you want to happen to this business over the next 10 or 15 years and, and really be good stewards, not just in protecting what they've built, but adding to what they've built in a way that honors that, yeah. that legacy. So our time is, you know, one of the most important things that we do is, is buy great businesses and hire the right operator to to help steward that company under our guidance. And so it's work, it's meeting with our operators, it's coaching them, acting as a, as a very hands-on board, jumping in when needed to help support, and just making sure yeah. that we are making the right decisions inside our portfolio to grow our companies, keep them as durable, you know, multi-decade long-term assets that, that, are, that are strong businesses that we're proud to, you know, put forward into our community. Yeah. No, I love that. Chase, really appreciate you joining, man. Just a, such a fascinating story. I think super inspiring to a, a lot of people that will be listening to this. So appreciate you openly sharing. We always like to wrap up giving you the opportunity to share any anything interesting, interesting projects you're working on that you want people to know about and, and where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and Dakota Group. Awesome. Feel free to no, plug or shout yeah. out whatever you'd like. Happy to. Well, thanks for the invite, guys. This is a fun conversation. Well, yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Chase Murdoch. I recently launched a newsletter called Local Legends. So you can find a link on my Twitter there. But otherwise, happy to happy to help searchers that are earlier on in their journey or, or operators that have made the acquisition and are struggling through the J-curve. DMs are open. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited by the fact that there's this growing space of folks interested in yeah. stewarding small businesses. I think I think that creates a richer world where smart people are choosing to not go into consulting or private equity and are choosing to go buy, you know, otherwise mundane businesses to, to use the word. So if I could be helpful to anyone on that journey, I would love to, to really help there, but not much to plug otherwise. Kevin, was, was, was that the same question you were going to ask? It was not the, my, the, my last question was the one I was actually going to ask. Nah. So, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. We, we won't want. Close, but no. no. Close, but no yeah. cigar. We would have been talking over each other. Thanks again, Chase. Always a pleasure. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.